0: Story Seven of The House with the Mezzanine and Other Stories by Anton Chekhov. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Story Seven: My Life, The Story of a Provincial, Part Two. Among the supporters of amateur theatricals, charity concerts, and tableau vivants, the leaders were the Azukins, who lived in their own house in Great Gentry Street. They used to lend their house and assume the necessary trouble and expense. They were a rich landowning family and had about three thousand Erskins, with a magnificent farm in the neighborhood, but they did not care for village life and lived in the town summer and winter. The family consisted of a mother, a tall, spare, delicate lady, who had short hair, wore a blouse and a plain skirt a l'anglais and three daughters who were spoken of not by their names but as the eldest the middle and the youngest they all had ugly sharp chins and they were short-sighted high-shouldered dressed in the same style as their mother had an unpleasant lisp and yet they always took part in every play and were always doing something for charity acting reciting singing they were very serious and never smiled and even in burlesque operettas, they acted without gaiety and with a business like air, as though they were engaged in bookkeeping. I loved our plays, especially the rehearsals, which were frequent, rather absurd, and noisy, and we were always given supper after them. I had no part in the selection of the pieces and the casting of the characters. I had to look after the stage. I used to design the scenery and copy out the parts and prompt and make-up, and I also had to look after the various effects, such as thunder, the singing of a nightingale, and so on. Having no social position, I had no decent clothes, and during rehearsals had to hold aloof from the others in the darkened wings and shyly say nothing. I used to paint the scenery at the Asquin's coach-house or yard. I was assisted by a house-painter, or as he called himself, a decorating contractor, named Andre Ivanov, a man of about fifty, tall and very thin and pale, with a narrow chest, hollow temples, and dark rings under his eyes. He was rather awful to look at. He had some kind of wasting disease, and every spring and autumn he was said to be on the point of death yet he would go to bed for a while and then get up and say with surprise i'm not dead this time in the town he was called radish and people said it was his real name he loved the theatre as much as i and no sooner did he hear that a play was in hand than he gave up all his work and went to the azzaquins to paint scenery the day after my conversation with my sister i worked from morning till night at the azzaquins the rehearsal was fixed for seven o'clock and an hour before it began all the players were assembled and the eldest the middle and the youngest miss asequine were reading their parts on the stage radish in a long brown overcoat with a scarf wound round his neck was standing leaning with his head against the wall looking at the stage with a rapt expression mrs asaquin went from guest to guest saying something pleasant to every one she had a way of gazing into one's face and speaking in a hushed voice as though she were telling a secret it must be difficult to paint scenery she said softly coming up to me i was just talking to mrs Muffey about prejudice when i saw you come in mon dieu all my life i have struggled against prejudice to convince the servants that all their superstitions are nonsense i always light three candles and i begin all my important business on the thirteenth the daughter of Dolikov, the engineer was there a handsome plump fair girl dressed as people said in our town in parisian style she did not act but at rehearsals a chair was put for her on the stage and the plays did not begin until she appeared in the front row to astonish everybody with the brilliance of her clothes. As coming from the metropolis, she was allowed to make remarks during rehearsals, and she did so with an affable, condescending smile, and it was clear that she regarded our plays as a childish amusement. It was said that she had studied singing at the Petersburg Conservatoire, and had sung for a winter season in opera. I liked her very much, and during rehearsals or the performance I never took my eyes off her. I had taken the book and began to prompt, when suddenly my sister appeared. Without taking off her coat and hat she came up to me and said, "Please come." I went. Behind the stage in the doorway stood Agnuitier Blagovo, also wearing a hat with a dark veil. She was the daughter of the vice-president of the court who had been appointed to our town years ago almost as soon as the high court was established she was tall and had a good figure and was considered indispensable for the tableau vivant and when she represented a fairy or a muse her face would burn with shame but she took no part in the plays and would only look in at rehearsals on some business and never enter the hall and it was evident now that she had only looked in for a moment. "'My father has mentioned you,' she said dryly, not looking at me, and blushing. "'Dolikov has promised to find you something to do in the railway. If you go to his house to-morrow, he will see you.' I bowed and thanked her for her kindness. "'And you must leave this,' she said, pointing to my book. She and my sister went up to Mrs. Azaquin and began to whisper— looking at me. Indeed, said Mrs. Asaquin, coming up to me and gazing into my face, indeed, if it takes you from your more serious business she took the book out of my hands, then you must hand it over to someone else. Don't worry, my friend, it will be all right. I said good bye, and left in some confusion. As I went downstairs I saw my sister and Anuita Blagovol going away. They were talking animatedly, I suppose, about my going on the railway, and they hurried away. My sister had never been to a rehearsal before, and she was probably tortured by her conscience and by her fear of my father finding out that she had been to the Azzaquins without permission. The next day I went to see Dolikov at one o'clock. The man-servant showed me into a charming room, which was the engineer's drawing-room and study. Everything in it was charming and tasteful, and to a man like myself, unused to such things, very strange. Costly carpets, huge chairs, bronzes, pictures in gold and velvet frames, photographs on the walls of beautiful women, clever, handsome faces, and striking attitudes. From the drawing-room a door led straight into the garden, by a veranda, and I saw lilac and a table laid for breakfast rolls and a bunch of roses and there was a smell of spring and good cigars and happiness and everything seemed to say here lives a man who has worked and won the highest happiness here on earth at the table the engineer's daughter was sitting reading a newspaper do you want my father she asked he is having a shower-bath he will be down presently please take a chair i sat down I believe you live opposite," she asked after a short silence. Yes. When I have nothing to do, I look out of the window. You must excuse me," she added, turning to her newspaper, and I often see you and your sister. She has such a kind, wistful expression. Dolikov came in. He was wiping his neck with a towel. Papa, this is Mr. Polonyev," said his daughter. Uh, yes yes Lagavo spoke to me he turned quickly to me but did not hold out his hand but what do you think i can give you i'm not bursting with situations you are queer people he went on in a loud voice and as though he were scolding me i get about twenty people every day as though i were a department of state i run a railway sir i employ hard labour i need mechanics navvies joiners well-sinkers, and you can only sit and write. That's all. You are all clerks." And he exhaled the same air of happiness as his carpets and chairs. He was stout, healthy, with red cheeks and a broad chest. He looked clean in his pink shirt and wide trousers, just like a china figure of a postboy. He had a round, bristling beard, and not a single gray hair, and a nose with a slight bridge and bright innocent dark eyes what can you do he went on nothing i am an engineer and well-to-do but before i was given this railway i worked very hard for a long time i was an engine-driver for two years i worked in belgium as an ordinary lubricator now my dear man just think what work can i offer you "'I quite agree,' said I, utterly abashed, not daring to meet his bright, innocent eyes. "'Are you any good with the telegraph?' he asked after some thought. "'Yes, I have been in the telegraph service.' "Hm. Well, we'll see. Go to dubeshnya There's a fellow there already, but he is a scamp.' "'And what will my duties be?' I asked. "'We'll see to that later. Go there now. I'll give orders.' but please don't drivel and don't bother me with petitions, or I'll kick you out." He turned away from me without even a nod. I bowed to him and his daughter, who was reading the newspaper, and went out. I felt so miserable that when my sister asked how the engineer had received me, I could not utter a single word. To go to Dubeshnia I got up early in the morning at sunrise. There was not a soul in the street. The whole town was asleep, and my footsteps rang out with a hollow sound. The dewy poplars filled the air with a soft scent. I was sad and had no desire to leave the town. It seemed so nice and warm. I loved the green trees, the quiet sunny mornings, the ringing of the bells, but the people in the town were alien to me, tiresome, and sometimes even loathsome. I neither liked nor understood them i did not understand why or for what purpose those thirty five thousand people lived i knew that kimry made a living by manufacturing boots that Tula made samovars and guns that odessa was a port but i did not know what our town was or what it did the people in great gentry street and two other clean streets had independent means and salaries paid by the treasury But how the people lived in the other eight streets, which stretched parallel to each other for three miles, and then were lost behind the hill, that was always an insoluble problem to me. And I am ashamed to think of the way they lived. They had neither public gardens, nor a theatre, nor a decent orchestra. The town and club libraries were used only by young Jews, so that books and magazines would lie for months uncut. The rich and the intelligentsia slept in close, stuffy bedrooms, with wooden beds infested with bugs. The children were kept in filthy, dirty rooms called nurseries, and the servants, even when they were old and respectable, slept on the kitchen floor and covered themselves with rags. Except in Lent all the houses smelt of borscht and during Lent of sturgeon fried in sunflower oil. The food was unsavory, the water unwholesome. On the town council, at the governor's, at the archbishop's, everywhere there had been talk for years about there being no good cheap water supply, and of borrowing two hundred thousand roubles from the treasury. Even the very rich people, of whom there were about thirty in the town, people who would lose a whole estate at cards, used to drink the bad water and talk passionately about the loan and i could never understand this for it seemed to me it would be simpler for them to pay up the two hundred thousand i did not know a single honest man in the whole town my father took bribes and imagined they were given to him out of respect for his spiritual qualities the boys at the high school in order to be promoted went to lodge with the masters and paid them large sums the wife of the military commandant took levies from the recruits during the recruiting and even allowed them to stand her drinks and once she was so drunk in church that she could not get up from her knees during the recruiting the doctors also took bribes and the municipal doctor and the veterinary surgeon levied taxes on the butcher shops and public houses the district school did a trade in certificates which gave certain privileges in the civil service The provosts took bribes from the clergy and churchwardens whom they controlled, and on the town council and various committees every one who came before them was pursued with one expects thanks, and thereby forty kopecks had to change hands. And those who did not take bribes, like the high court officials, were stiff and proud, and shook hands with two fingers and were distinguished by their indifference and narrow-mindedness they drank and played cards married rich women and always had a bad insidious influence on those round them only the girls had any moral purity most of them had lofty aspirations and were pure and honest at heart but they knew nothing of life and believed that bribes were given to honour spiritual qualities and when they married they soon grew old and weak and were hopelessly lost in the mire of that vulgar bourgeois existence part two